And, and lots of people did warn me against this particular skipper. It's a mad skipper. An American couple, I think, or a Canadian couple, said to me, please don't go. He's got a terrible reputation. He was seen hitting his daughter in a restaurant. And he's been in prison for people smuggling. And the, the stupid thing was, I had already had a horrendous voyage with another skipper from Malaysia to Indonesia. I swore then I wouldn't do it again, but then I found myself in Cartagena with no other way of getting across to Panama without putting it on a small boat. I'd been told that if I got somebody else interested in the journey, my fare would be reduced. So I thought, okay, I'll go to a hostel and find somebody else wants to go. But they wouldn't put a notice up on the notice board because this man had such a bad reputation. And I thought, oh, he's all right, really. He's Italian. He's got a hot temper. He'll be fine. I was blind to all the advice I got. I did eventually find somebody else that wanted to go. So off we went. With um, a boat that was, well, unseaworthy really. It didn't have the an adequate anchor chain. It was very rusty and spindly. He'd smashed the compass in a fit of rage before we left. And he filled up the, the tank with cheap, dirty diesel. It wasn't long after leaving Cartagena that we started to have problems. Well, we had to navigate by the stars for one thing. We got to some islands halfway between Panama and Colombia. And the weather suddenly changed. And this was supposed to be Paradise Island where I would be able to do snorkeling and swimming and get to explore the Sun Blast Islands. But we couldn't leave. He was worried that the boat was going to break free of its anchor because the, the chain was so rusty. And also that the anchor wasn't big enough for the boat. He wanted to put my bike down. He wanted to throw my bike overboard as uh, an added anchor. Well, I wasn't having that. So I sort of backed up the bike with my arms outside and said you dare touch it and uh, you'll be in trouble and I was ready to defend my bike with my life really. In the end I, I was thrown off 
So I had to get some fishermen to take my bike on their boat and take me to the mainland. And I was never so happy in my life to get onto dry ground. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bee Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tax. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Jackie Furno is from the UK. She left on a journey of discovery after her marriage broke up and spent about the next seven years traveling the world. The intro that you just heard is from an experience that Jackie had near the end of her seven-year journey where she found, or she chose, sort of an unsavory captain to transport her and her motorcycle around the Darien Gap by sea. Now, the Darien Gap, in case you don't know, is a small section of roadless land between Panama and Colombia in Central America. It's a break in the Pan American Highway that forces you to circumnavigate it by sea or by air. Jackie chose to go by sea to save some extra money. But after seven years of traveling, you have to wonder why her traveler's intuition didn't kick in. Or if it did, why did she ignore it and go anyway? That's a very good question. And yes, I did have, uh, had developed a strong sense of what was the right thing to do and what would not be advisable. But I went against my own intuition, because I was desperate to to cross that bit of water. Uh, but my traveler's intuition just left me. I think I was so desperate to get across that bit of water 
between Colombia and Panama that uh, I just ignored all the signals and told myself it'll be all right. He'll he'll be fine once we start the journey. Uh, but it went from bad to worse. Um, but anyway, I haven't done it since. I haven't been on a boat since. Uh, a small boat, not with the bike. I have been on a boat since, and that's another story. But to be fair, Jackie, you you took twice to <laughs> to learn that lesson. <laughs> but I but I think that's so so interesting though because. What you're saying is you, you you knew it. You knew it in your gut that you shouldn't take that ride. You knew that that wasn't going to work. And for whatever reason, I mean, I mean probably a whole bunch of things. Um, I know that you're, you were running out with your visa, I think. And so time was of, of the essence. You were having trouble finding a boat to go on. All these things, you know, sort of come together in a perfect storm so that you end up ignoring your intuition. You ignore your, your gut feeling and do something that gets you into exactly what you're really predicting for yourself. And it's an interesting lesson, isn't it, for all travelers? Yes. It just goes to show you should listen to your gut feelings and listen to your intuition. Um, and, and and even subsequent to the trip, I do that now. If if something doesn't feel right, I don't do it. Why did you do this trip? What got you riding around the world to begin with? Uh, I met a Dutchman whilst I was, tra- uh, whilst I was backpacking. My marriage had broken down and... I left with my tail between my legs, really. I didn't know what else to do with myself after my marriage broke down. And I met in um, Rajasthan. I was going to go on a camel safari and I had picked up various leaflets to look over whilst I was having lunch. And I left the main city and sat in a restaurant and... No, I was going to a restaurant, and as I approached the restaurant, so did a Dutchman on a motorbike. I didn't know he was Dutch at the time, of course. Um, a, a large man on a motorbike, and I, I looked at the bike, and I, I don't, I'd had my license since 1976, and I thought, oh, I haven't seen one of those before. That's an interesting-looking motorbike. And it looked rather rather shabby. Anyway, I went into the restaurant and I asked this this man about the bike. I said, "What what is that? Is it an old British bike? It's uh, obviously not a Japanese one." And so he he didn't mind me joining him for lunch. And well, to cut a long story short, four days later, uh, we said goodbye, having spent all those days in the desert together. And I thought I'd never see him again. Um, I sat pillion on the back of his bike all that time and we went camping in the desert between India and Pakistan where we shouldn't have gone. And we had a lovely, lovely adventurous time, talked a lot. And I thought, as you do when you're traveling, you meet lots of interesting people that you think would be nice to keep in touch with. But we didn't even exchange email addresses. And I went home after... Um, a few more months. I was t- at the end of my year traveling. And eight months after I got back, he turned up on my mother's doorstep where I was living because I didn't have a home of my own. And he said, I've never been able to forget you. Um, why don't you buy an Enfield and travel with me in India? Let's go back to India, buy you, you can buy an Enfield as well. And we'll travel around together for a, a while. And I haven't been able to settle back in the UK. I didn't know what to do. My um, my family was spread all over the place. And 
so I jumped it I jumped at it I said yeah okay I'll do that and so I flew to India bought myself an Enfield he um he joined me and that's it we went traveling together I thought it might last six months because I was quite a bit older than him well a lot older than him and uh we we stayed together for four years and it wasn't until we got to Australia from India that he decided to settle down and so I was left on my own and I thought well I don't know whether I can manage this heavy Enfield on my own because he used to help pick me up and uh, do all the mechanic things which he he encouraged me to help with and uh, anyway I, I, I did and I traveled on my own with the bike for the next three years until I got back to Bristol. So there's no plan when you started out. It wasn't like you, you know, got the bike and you thought, okay, well, here's, here's my plan. I'm going to go from here to there. I'm going to cross over to South America. That wasn't, that wasn't part of the idea when you left. No, Uh, I left everything to him wherever he wanted to go. I was happy after a lifetime of being um, a nurse, a health visitor and a wife and mother, I was ruled by the clock and by uh, work times and, two weeks um, summer holiday every year. That was that was the extent of my freedom, if you like. Not that I, I've, I've always been happy being a, a nurse and very happy being a wife and mother. Um, but it was absolutely lovely to have somebody else make all the decisions because he, he knew where he wanted to go. And I said, I don't care where we go. I'm enjoying myself wherever we go. So you carry on. So... Yeah, that's what we did. And we we explored India together and then into Nepal, um, Pakistan. And then when we got back into India, we decided to go to Burma and whilst shipping the bikes over to Thailand. But I had to toss a coin first because we, we hadn't been getting on very well and it was debatable whether we would continue traveling together. And uh, it was, shall I... Shall I go to? Shall I go back home via Pakistan again and through Iran, and that way, or shall I continue with him um, and carry on going east? And then I thought well, I'd love to see Australia and Canada and um, other places and New Zealand. And so I thought, well, they're all that way. So if I go that way, the if I go east with him, that'll be good. But I was I was so indecisive. I just tossed a coin and it ended up that we traveled on together, which we were both happy about for a while. You literally tossed a coin? Yes. <laughs> well, actually, I got the waiters in a, in a, hotel, in a restaurant in uh, Amritsar to, uh, to toss a coin. And heads, it was Burma, and tails, it was back into Pakistan. What was your boyfriend's name? Hendrikas. So after you left Hendrikas, when he decides to settle down in Australia, what comes into your head then? You, you figure you're going to continue on and just travel willy-nilly? Pretty much, yes. Um, it was it was a bit um, heartbreaking. The breakup was was not good for me because I wasn't sure what was happening. He told me to go and do some traveling on my own and he'd catch me up. And he didn't catch me up, and I was—I suddenly became aware that he uh, wasn't going to catch me up. And then he rang me to say he'd found somebody else and was going to get married. And so I then went to New Zealand and started my life all over again and started travelling in New Zealand and loved it. 
Well, I, I think a lot of people listening would think that this just sounds like the ideal life. I mean, just decide where you're going to go when you wake up in the morning. But what do you do for money while you're on the road? Well, luckily, I was traveling at a time when the pound, the British pound, was really strong against other currencies. And of course, I was I was traveling in, in countries that weren't expensive until I got to Australia and New Zealand. They were much more expensive than Asia. But before then, um, my income covered my expenses um, and allowed me to save a little bit as well. Um, I, when my marriage came to an end, my husband and I sold the house we live we were living in. He bought an, another house with with his money, and I spent mine on travel. So it was uh, it was <laughs> it was opportune for me to do that, and I'm very glad I did it then, because with the pound so low now, I don't know whether I would be able to afford it. But I was living on three hundred about three hundred pounds a month then because I gave my money to somebody that was starting a business and um, interest rates were high and I was able to live on £300 a month very easily in India and Pakistan and Southeast Asia. It was it, not that we were extravagant at all. We, we'd sleep at the side of the road or we'd stay in really, really cheap hotels and eat street food and did all our maintenance and repairs ourselves. So it was living very cheaply. And I loved it. I loved it because it wasn't five star. Uh, I love camping out and and the traveling life. And, you know, it's just nice. I love it. Seven years on the road is a, a long time. And you had just loads and loads of experiences here. The, the other one, I mean, we sort of alluded to there, you know, we talked about your second boat experience. What was your first boat experience? Well, I should have learned from that, really, but didn't. Um, Hendrikus had decided he wanted to travel on his own in Malaysia as well, before we got to Australia. And he he flew himself and his bike to Australia, leaving me in Malaysia. And again, uh, that was the first time I thought, I can't manage this bike on my own. I'll have to go home. I'll just leave it here. Um, but then I went on a little weekend trip and managed perfectly well, even though the the spring went in the in the gear lever. And uh, I managed. I. I managed to get it fixed or, you know, people helped me. And I thought, well, maybe I can do this on my own. So I learned to pick the bike up on my own, taking the luggage off and heaving it up. And I thought, well, if I can pick the bike up on my own and if, if I can manage to get things mended um, that go wrong, well, I'm, I'll try. So I, I did, I carried on. And when he'd gone, I, I got uh, friendly with people at the marina in Lamut. It was it was near uh, near Lamut. Actually it was a town called City One. And one of the skippers was going to Australia, where I'd always wanted to see. And my father had said, Oh, go to Australia one day. I never went, but see if you can get there. So I thought, well I'll go and do and uh, do his bit of travelling for him like I was doing for my mother. And we managed to get the bike on the boat. It was a very small catamaran. 
and it fitted just fitted in the transom of the boat. So we thought, okay, I scraped the bottom of the boat and did the anti-fouling and helped get it ready. And it took months and months and everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. But eventually we were able to leave and we went to um, we went towards Indonesia from Malaysia. So we booked out of Malaysia and that was beset with disaster as well. No sooner had we left uh, going up the Straits of Malacca than we picked up five castaways who had been dumped in the, in the sea between Sumatra and Malaysia. And they just, they paid to be taken to Malaysia, which, was, uh, which is a richer country than Indonesia. They were looking for work and to improve their lot. So we picked them up and decided, well, the skipper decided that they should be handed in when we, somewhere in Malaysia. We couldn't take them with us because we were heading to Australia and had limited food supplies. So we decided to take them to Malaysia, but to hand them in to the police. But by the time we got there, we'd got rather fond of them and they convinced us that they weren't going to do any harm they just wanted to work so we let them go at dusk one night when we got to port clang and then the next morning we noticed that we we had actually moored the boat right next to five police launches <laughs> and could easily have been seen and of course would have been arrested where he would have been i was just a crew but um anyway it all worked out well and i just hope they made good so in saving somebody, you're people smuggling at that point. Well, we were really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, crumbs. I hope I hope I don't get into trouble for this, but it wasn't my decision, I'm happy to say. I was just an innocent crew member. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's the skipper of the boat that takes responsibility for that. This is a catamaran you were on. It was. It was a very small catamaran. It was um, 23 foot, I think. Well, yeah, very small indeed. But I did have my own cabin, I'm happy to say. We didn't, yeah, and then again, I, I don't seem to get on very well with sailors. It, uh, we didn't get on well, and he threatened to cut me up into little bits because I, uh, he, well, he, we didn't get on. And he, when it was my turn to cook, I'm not a very good cook, and he, he was an excellent cook, and he would, he would make croissants and things and bake things and exquisite French food, whereas all I could manage was some sort of slop from the um, pressure cooker on board. I just bung a whole load of lentils in and some vegetables and <laughs> that would be my lot and we we were robbed twice because some pirates came alongside one day and demanded all our food i was hiding inside and he managed to keep them from boarding by giving them lots of food and supplies and they they went off but we were left with no gas for cooking and and all and a huge amount of our food had gone and we were supposed to be on our way to Australia, of course. Mm. So we thought, well, okay, we'll, we'll go to the nearest Indonesian Island and restock with everything. So we did that <laughs> moored up on a beach and were robbed again when we went to check in <laughs> with immigration. And every, then somebody got on board and stole all the tools and his passports and uh, credit cards and money. I had mine with me luckily. So after that, I thought, well, this is it. If we ever get to Jakarta, which we were heading for so that he could uh, get a, a new passport, I thought, well, 
I'm getting off. So I did. I got off. And the in, the Indonesian police and customs and immigration were absolutely marvellous and gave me letters of safe passage all the way through Indonesia. So, yeah, never will I put my bike on a small craft ever again. Obviously, it's been on lots of ferries since over, over to France, but uh, no, it's not doing that anymore. It's too precious to me. But that first trip on the catamaran that you were just describing there, you, you sort of thought that was going to be an idyllic cruise. You, you thought it was going to be this amazing <laughs> thing. And that's, that's what really drew you in. Absolutely. I thought, what could be nicer? These lovely Indonesian islands, palm trees, sandy beaches, white sand, uh, wildlife that won't be frightened because they won't have seen many people. will be able to swim and have beach bonfires and barbecues and things i just thought it was lovely but uh it didn't turn out like that at all and uh but anyway it would i've got some good memories of that but i'm more trepidation and fear than than happy memories you you talked about fixing up the boat you said you spent months literally working on this boat i mean it seems like a ridiculously long period of time to work on something that should have been up and running but you even talked about the the different things that you had problems with one was the prop being a reverse screw prop that was on the boat what was this this boat a wreck when you guys started working on it or i don't quite understand that well it had been a wreck he'd found it somewhere and um he he'd sailed it originally from Australia to Malaysia, and he'd taken it there for, for, for refitting an engine. It had twin outboard engines on it, and he wanted to replace those with a single inboard engine. So he bought an old tractor engine, and the gearbox was, I don't know, ran the wrong way or something. And so when it was fitted to the propeller, the, the shaft, the propeller shaft, it went into reverse instead of forward gear. And so we crashed into the jetty many a time because uh, he didn't want to take it all out and, and redo it. So that went on. And then so he got a propeller that was a reverse screw so that it instead of going backwards, it would go forward. So that was all right. And then we found out it was too big or too small and we could only make three knots and we couldn't do any... It was just awful and it wouldn't when we were sailing uh, the propeller was drag making us drag through the water as well so we had to rig up a sort of pulley to get the propeller out of the water i'm not a sailing person i'm probably talking uh, not using the right terminology or anything uh no i've i've tried sailing and i'm not going to do that anymore (laughs) (laughs) you have not had uh, good experiences from the two you describe but what about the motorcycle riding what about your riding you were concerned about handling the bike the bike was heavy for you etc when you left hendrika and you went on your own how did you get past that um i learned to love it instead of being afraid of it i think And I I started to think of it as my sturdy companion rather than something that was a nuisance to be repaired all the time. I found when I started traveling on my own, it didn't go wrong as much and it didn't seem to need replacement parts as much. Now, I know that Hendrikus was a very keen mechanic 
And I think sometimes he was interested to see how things worked. So I'm wondering if he did take things apart that didn't really need taking apart. And, of course, I thought this was all part and parcel of everyday maintenance. And uh, I decided that, well, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a mechanic. I just thought, well, if it's too much trouble, I'll just leave it and go home. But it, it, it didn't go wrong as much. And things that did go wrong were fairly easily fixed. And it wasn't until I got to New Zealand that I thought, well, I really ought to have it really well looked into. And I had a, a rebore and a sleeve put in the piston uh, in the engine and uh, a, a replacement piston and rings and everything. And oh, this and that, new forks. And I really treated it to lots of new things. And Jim, I've, I've hardly done anything to it since, really. I think new valve guides, a new um, new exhaust valve, I think that's about it, really. Although the top end does need doing because it's losing a lot of oil, using a lot of oil now. Um, so, no, it's a, a, a remarkable machine, and I, I learned to manage it. And, and as I say, I, I started to look at it in a different way when it was just the two of us. And and not um, Hendrikus wasn't there with his Enfield, so I felt responsible for it. And with that responsibility grew whatever it is that you have for your machine. And I know other people feel exactly the same about theirs that they've had for a long time. Well, you're still riding this bike now. Well, I was out on it this afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same bike, so that's pretty incredible. I mean, a lot of people get rid of bikes and cars in particular, but I mean, very quickly and have it for a few years and move on to something else. You found your bike and stuck with it. Yeah. Stay with us. We're going to take a minute break. And when we come back, we got a lot more that we're going to talk about, including some pretty intimate details about Jackie's motivation to stay on the road. I think the mess I'd made of things before I left, (laughs) it doesn't go away. It's still there when you get back. A while back, somebody was telling me about a great deal that he got on some foot pegs for his bike. And they looked the part. They had the heavy cleats. They looked like they were made of some sort of polished metal. They looked heavy duty. They were considerably wider than stock. But a little bit closer inspection revealed that the manufacturer of these pegs had added the width to the forward and backward portions of the foot pegs. And that was a problem. Because when you add width to the foot peg, towards the front of the motorcycle. You increase the angle your foot needs to be at to reach your shifter and even your your brake pedal for that matter. So instead of making his bike handle better and giving him more control, it actually made it more difficult to ride. And that's one of the problems of buying knockoff parts or buying from companies that don't put their due diligence into their products. Companies like IMS have 40 years plus of building top quality race products under their belt. So when they do something like design their foot pegs, which they have a full line of foot pegs, they put all that sort of knowledge into it. They know how to build stuff. They know how to test it. They know how to make sure that it's a top quality part, top quality in the way it's designed and in the materials that it's made of. IMS pegs are are 17.4 cast certified stainless steel. They're heat treated. They're made in the USA and they have a, a lifetime warranty that IMS stands behind. So 
If you want a set of quality foot pegs, I highly recommend you drop by IMS and grab yourself a set of the pegs they have. And they've got a full range of them, so you've got a, a bunch of choices there. The website, www.imsproducts.com. And they support the show, so when you drop by, you talk to them anytime you're dealing with them. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so they know it works for them. And just before we get back to Jackie, um, the season is coming up. I mean, I know we're in January now, but before you know it, we're going to be into summer. And now's the time to think about booking your lessons or your instruction for riding. So increase your riding skills. PSSOR, Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, is uh, a company that does a lot of different training, including on-road training. But their off-road training, they do camps where you can go to the camp and and basically you're doing day instruction from there. But the ones that, that I think are, are really cool that they're doing are the ones that take you on the back road discovery routes. They set you up with your instructor in a small group and you head out basically on an adventure and they use all the learning opportunities. I mean, they've, they've scoped all this in advance and they know, know all their places they're going to stop at, but they also take any opportunities where someone has a problem and turn it into learning. So if you want to, you want to learn basically on the fly while you go and have an adventure at the same time, I would definitely recommend dropping by and seeing what they've got. www.pssor.com. That's pssor.com. What's your drive on the road? You know, I, well, that, that probably doesn't sound like a very good sentence there. What's your drive on the road? But, but what draws you down the road of travel? You mentioned you sort of felt broken up when you left your boyfriend and you're off on your own again. What's the pull? What's the draw? What, what is it that keeps you going? First and foremost, curiosity. Um, I'm, I've just got to know what's around the corner and what's, what's up that little lane. And even now when I'm out and about in my home city, I'll, if I'm out walking, I'll go a different way just to see what's down there. So it's curiosity to start with. And it's a thoroughly enjoyable way of life. And it did become a way of life. It wasn't a trip anymore. It wasn't a holiday. It was... It became a way of life after so many years. And it was a nice way of life. And, and I'm not saying it's idyllic. It isn't. It, it gets very aimless. And I got incredibly lonely at times. But I learned to cope with that loneliness and aimlessness. Um, because mostly it was very enjoyable and I was meeting new people. But I did begin to wonder whether meeting new people was a way of avoiding close relationships because have it, meeting people and having a short relationship with them before you move on is a very nice way of living, but you don't really get to know people that well. And I wondered if I was avoiding meeting myself um, uh, no, no, that's not right, not me. I wondered if I was avoiding facing up to things at home. And that's one of the reasons why I came home when my daughter said, um, come home, mum, we need a mother. What did you have to face up to? Uh, I think the mess I'd made of things before I left. <laughs> it doesn't go away. It's still there when you get back. Describe the mess. Oh, ooh, you are digging deep. Um, <laughs> well, I'd, I'd had a, a happy marriage for, for 20 years and 
things had changed. People changed. My husband had changed. And things were going well for us. And and particularly for him in his career, he worked for for an oil company that sponsored uh, motor racing, which is is still his dearest love. And it took him away from home and family. And he had moved on where I had sort of stayed still, I suppose, because my family meant everything to me, him and my family, my, my two, our two daughters and our home. My career took second place, really. I was a, a health visitor. And I loved that. But first and foremost was my husband, my children. And then as they grew up and he developed his career, I was sort of a bit left behind, especially when he got a new post, which took him away from home at weekends and all week, where he'd been working from home all the time and we had all our weekends together. Suddenly he was off to Silverstone and Brands Hatch and places like that uh, for work. And so I was sort of left at, at home wondering what to do and because I that was my life and then um we, we talked about it and I was t- I told him how I felt and he suggested I got an interest of my own and I did and unfortunately that led to me meeting somebody um that shared the same interest and uh that was the end of my marriage an affair I had an affair, yes. And that was sort of the mess that you felt that you left when you headed out on the road? Yes, it, it wasn't resolved with with our daughters, not really. And it needed, I ran away and I shouldn't have really. I, I should have stayed and faced the music and built rebuilt a relationship with them. But I didn't. Um, and although they were very kind to me um, and said, oh, don't, f-, Claire in particular said, don't feel you're in exile, mum. You, you're not. I, it, I think it was me. I felt I ought to go. And so I went away instead of what I maybe should have done is, is stayed. But it's all, you know, what. I wouldn't have had the I wouldn't have had the, the, the lovely years I had. I wouldn't have met Hendrikus in Rajasthan. I wouldn't have bought an Enfield in India. I wouldn't have travelled around the world for seven years. I wouldn't be talking to you now. But I, who knows what I would have been doing instead? It's funny the way life takes you, isn't it? And I now have a, a lovely relationship with both my daughters and my ex-husband. I was talking to him for good hour i think this morning and so everything is resolved we spent christmas together and i and i'm i have a very good family and uh, i'm very very grateful for that life is like that isn't it i mean you, you look back and you you can you can easily look back and say well i wonder if i had have done this instead something you perceive to be the correct path now always easy hindsight you know like they say hindsight is 2020 mm-hmm. and but the things that um that we've been through in life it, it is what makes us what we are today even if it's pain and suffering oh i couldn't agree with you more yes people who have um what looks to be an easy life uh 
I don't know. I, I think I've developed and grown and, and gained confidence as a result of my travels. And it broadens your mind. It stop, and the biggest thing is it stops you being fearful of people from other countries. If, and if you're not fearful, you understand more and you know, realise that we're, we're not the best here by any means. Nobody's got the best. If only we could take the best out of everybody's lifestyles and things, but it's um, no, it's, it's a cliche, isn't it? Travel broadens the mind, but it most definitely does. And it, I think we would all be a lot more tolerant if we if we did that. What do you think the the core thing is that someone learns on a trip like you've done? I mean, if somebody was coming to you and saying, "I'm about to go on this trip," what could you almost predict that they're going to learn on the road? Depends on the sort of travel, um, but it certainly taught me how to be resourceful and use what's available rather than just buying a replacement, uh, especially with the Enfield. I've stuck it together with sticky tape and string at, at, and at times. It makes you think oh, how... if. Because things do go wrong sometimes, and you've got to think, how am I going to get out of this scrape? Or, oh, right, what can I do now? And and I've learned to trust. So I think resourcefulness and trust uh, are the two th- two big things I learned, and confidence, and um, just to be self-aware as well. I think I learned to be self-aware that... Um, to just laugh at myself more and not take life so seriously and to learn to cope with loneliness and the aimlessness and think, well, okay, but loneliness is, it really does get to you. That's why I wrote so many diaries, I think, because it was like um, talking to somebody. I'm very glad I did now because if I hadn't written those diaries to keep myself company, I probably wouldn't have had enough information for writing the book. That diary got you in trouble at one point um, when someone found it. I don't, I'm not going to spoil that. I'm going to leave it for people to read the book. <laughs> but that, that's a that's a funny little take on a diary that it, that really has has made the book uh, in the long run. But I was going to say back to what we we're talking about about what you learn on the road. Do you think part of it is process? Is is you learn how to process things? Because I think at one point you referred to the fact that now when your family has something to figure out, they sort of give it to you because Jackie's the person that will you know get on the phone or whatever or dig through and and doesn't have a problem approaching people is that part of what you're learning is i mean could that even be the core of it is that process you learn how to process things you learn how to figure things out and as you said um, make do i don't know that my family come to me (laughs) come to me to sort out problems uh well maybe i maybe i uh, misunderstood that but it was it was something to do with you know with approaching people or or being uh Yeah, I, yes, I have got a reputation for being perfectly fearless and going up to people and asking them anything I want to know or just chatting to people and, you know, commenting on something or rather uh, post office in, you know, in the queue. I'll talk to somebody. I'll talk to somebody if I'm on a bus or a train and find out all sorts of interesting things about people. And I have got a reputation for doing that. Yes. Did that come from travel? Yes. I think so. My my way of finding out things about what's going on or anything like that is is 
yes, I'm well known for that. And I think it did come from travel. I learned that from Hendrikus because he was he was fearless about going up and asking people. And he English wasn't his first language. So he, uh, he in India, where we met and spent those four days in the desert together, he would he would just march up to people and say and ask what he what he wanted to know. Whereas I would have I don't know. I would have not done that at that stage, although I'd already been backpacking for some time. I wasn't quite as um, able to to approach people in the same way he was. So I did learn a lot. I learned a great deal from him. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to him because he changed my life. When I say process, about, about processing things for yourself, in particular when you're traveling by yourself and you have to deal with something, your resources are limited because you may be in a foreign country, you don't speak the language, etc. I think that's what I'm looking at when I'm talking about learning the process of figuring things out, realizing that you are the person that's going to do it and you've got to, you've got to do it. Yes, I see what you mean. Um, yes. For instance, if the bike suddenly stops and there's nobody around, um, I've, I've got to think, why Why has it stopped? So I will go through a process of, is the petrol getting to the engine? Um, and and, and work, work through that. And, and you know, if, if the bike has conked out, then it's a matter of, of sorting out the problem. I've, I've always traveled with the, the manuals, so I knew... I knew even if I couldn't fix it, that somebody else would be able to. If I if I was in a place where there were lots of people, uh, there were oh, times in Australia where I, I wouldn't ever have been found if I hadn't been able to leave on, under my own steam. So, yes, you do go through a process. And if 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 I was ill or something, I I would think, what what shall I do? Um, okay, I need some help. So I would find um, a doctor or I would ask people, what do you do if you're ill? I, I was ill in Spain recently, this last year, and I had to had to seek medical help and I wasn't quite sure what to do. So I just went up and asked people, well, is there a doctor near here? Is there a clinic? Is there a health centre or something like that? And, you know, people will, would point me. My Spanish isn't very good, but people would point me in the right direction. Or you can do a lot with sign language and miming. And um, so I, I got I got the treatment I needed. There's always someone to help. See, and, and this is what I'm always fascinated with is is what I consider sort of traveler's tools. You, you talk to people, as I do all the time, like yourself, who have traveled extensively. And I always hear these things that sound like sort of traveler's tools, that you learn these methods and processes to figure things out. And what I'm wondering is, does that change your life when you get back home? When you get back home, do you become a more, uh, I hate to use the word successful, but a person that maybe gets more of what you want because of the tools that you've learned on the road? Yes, I suppose I don't, I don't panic if something goes wrong. And I'll work my way through whatever it is. The only the only time I do panic is if it's anything to do with the internet or anything technical. Uh, it's it's not my forte at all, and I I get I get quite distressed if things don't work. I'm trying to get the book onto Kindle at the moment. Fortunately, I've got a, a, a friend who's helping me. I wouldn't be able to manage without her. But I I just couldn't do it. I don't understand the terminology. 
or and you know if if this if this picture isn't the right format to go in that place then then I wouldn't know what to do luckily she did so the book's going to be out on Kindle fairly soon I hope but that's the only thing that I would not attempt is because it's totally beyond me but part of that is knowing that you don't understand that and knowing enough to to search out somebody and say I need help exactly yes Jackie it was great to talk to you I really enjoyed that thank you very much Oh, thanks, Jim. It was lovely to talk to you again. Really nice. Thank you. I've been speaking with Jackie Furneaux from her home in the UK. And what we've been talking about today is just parts of her book called Hit the Road, Jack, Seven Years, 20 Countries, No Plan by Jackie Furneaux. And if you drop by the show notes for this episode, we've got some pictures in there of the book. It's a beautiful book and a good read. Drop by our website, check out the show notes, and we have links to Jackie's website in there. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, if you like what we're doing here and you want to help out, consider dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and clicking on the support button. By doing so, anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show. So um, it it is built on a a model of advertising and listener support to make it work. And uh, the more support we get, the more we can make the show grow, the more things we can do with it. So drop by the website and check it out. But otherwise, you can drop by the website and listen to all of our episodes. You can also check out our other show, Raw, ARR Raw, which comes out once a month. We've just started our third year of Raw. That's also on the website. There's some other things there, too, that you might want to check out. I'm not going to spoil it. We're going to announce it later on, but go snoop around a little bit. See what you can find. Maybe pop me an email or or some sort of note, social media or something, and let me know what you found. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hi, this is Fonzie, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!